Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my indirectly effective friend Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In today's episode, we follow up last week's discussion of moderation by tackling its partner in crime, mediation, including causal challenges, ways of testing, and how we think about it as part of a larger analytical system. Along the way, we also mention word association, personal grievances, light switches, the Concorde jet, sharp sticks, hats and horses, getting shivved, and Jeff Spicoli. We hope you enjoy today's episode. I got a new app on my phone, and I want to share this app with you. Is it Angry Birds? Because that's the only app that I download is Angry Birds. (laughs) It is not. It is a word association app. Okay, that has danger written all over it, especially if you do it with your spouse. I I, I wouldn't know because I don't have a psychology degree, but it seemed like a fun thing for us to do. You ready? Okay, when I say spouse, I use that very generally defined, and I would say on some level this is a spousal-like relationship, and no, I am not ready. I do not want to do word association with you. Banana. (laughs) The first thing that came to mind was wildly inappropriate, and I won't say it. I will say potassium. Okay. Pants. Not wearing. Uh, Hamburger. Married to vegetarian, and I never get to eat one. Frugal. My brother. Overbearing. You. Ego. Me. Control issues. Both of us. Emotionally unavailable. (laughs) Both of us. Uses humor to hide pain. (laughs) I know a guy who knows a guy who might be that. I'm going to uninstall that app right now. First, technically, it's not word association if it uses humor to hide pain. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just supposed to be a word. Uh, All right, here's a word for you. Moderation. It depends. That's not a word. That's too... (laughs) Do you have to respond with a word? How does this... It's supposed to be just a word. Okay. Well, that kind of failed. (laughs) (laughs) Is one of the stems follows instructions? (laughs) Where I was going with this was I was eventually going to say the word moderation and you would say mediation. Oh, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. Mediation. (laughs) Actually, I've got one for you. Do you know what the secret of comedy is? What's that, Patrick? (laughs) I didn't want to give you that one. All right. Well, the word association, here's the way it was going to go. After I used it as an opportunity to air some personal grievances with you. (laughs) So it's Festivus. Now is the time that we air personal grievances. There we go. The airing of grievances. Set up the the poll. Um, I, I really wanted to talk about the pairing of moderation and mediation. And you and I have already done an episode on moderation. Which is being edited now. I promise. I swear. Really, give me a quick update. What minute are you on the moderation episode? I think I'm on minute 12 of 100. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, we had a nice discussion about moderation. 
And moderation and mediation just seem to go together. We talked extensively about moderation, and it seems reasonable that maybe we should try to talk a bit about mediation. I will confess, for starters, I'm not exactly sure why they have to go together, but they seem to be traveling in the same circles. Baron and Kenny, baby. That's why they go together. I think that's true. The main reason they're together is because people confused them, and Baron and Kenny wanted to make sure that... (laughs) We kept them apart. So I don't have Baron and Kenny in front of me. Sometimes you prepare for these recording sessions a bit more than I do. I don't know if you have that. For the moderation episode, you actually had their definition at hand. I can give the colloquial one. Moderation is under what conditions are two variables related to one another. Mm -hmm. And mediation is why are two variables related to one another. So I do think they make a nice hand-in-hand pairing. Well, I will not disappoint, or maybe I will disappoint, by having the Baron and Kenny definition at hand to complement your very nice colloquial explanation. In general, a given variable may be said to function as a mediator to the extent that it accounts for the relation between the predictor and the criterion. Okay, here mm-hmm. we go, here we go, here we go. I'm going to do word association with myself. Okay. <laughs> All right, because that's the only way I'm going to get this job done right, right? If you wanted something done right, you just do it yourself. That's fine. I'm going to go to the bathroom. You go ahead. Moderation, when, mediation, why. I might like that. Say a little bit more. Use more than two words. All right, so we have this thing at our dinner table with the girls, and it goes back to when they were even four or five years old, but it happened again just a couple of nights ago. We were talking, and we had the mandatory, what did you do today kind of thing, which is much harder because what did you do today? (laughs) It's like I sat 18 feet away from you in front of a computer (laughs) monitor. What the hell do you think I did today? But setting that issue aside is I talked about a Zoom call I had. And at one point, I said something. You know how you're talking, you don't monitor the exact words. I said I was conveying the story. And one of my daughters looked up and said, squid spleen. And my other daughter looked up and laughed. And she said, I know, right? (laughs) And I was talking about... Uh-huh. A work call that I had, and uh-huh. one says squid spleen, uh-huh. and the other one says, I know. <laughs> I, I raised my hand, and I said, okay, I call for a thought trace on this. Mm-hmm. All right, And we used to do this, like I said, when they were really, really young. Anybody at the table at any time can say, how the hell did you get there from wherever right. we were? How did you get from my Zoom call to squid spleen? And she said, well, you said you had an annoying call-in meeting today. And I said, uh-huh. And she said, well, we know an annoying call-in from school. His name is Colin, and he's annoying. So when you said you had an annoying Colin, we thought of our annoying Colin that made us think of Duke School, that made us think of our sound-to-sea trip we took last year, which made us think of dissecting a squid, which made us think of squid spleen, because Colin cut out the spleen of the squid and threw it at me. So when you said you had an annoying Colin, obviously... I thought of squid spleen. I know, right? <laughs> that is mediation. There you go. It's squid spleen. Yeah. 
<laughs> that is brilliant. I love the thought trace thing. It is a bit like a word association mm-hmm. where you go from this thing made me think of this thing made me think of this thing. So obviously that's not mediation, but what I became very passionate about studying when I went to grad school, and I still find it fascinating, is it's been known for decades and decades that if an adolescent has an alcoholic parent, the adolescent is at a significantly higher risk for drinking alcohol themselves compared to an adolescent who does not have an alcoholic parent. So there's a direct effect. Parental alcoholism is a risk factor for adolescent alcohol use. The mediator is, well, why? Why are they at risk? Is it a biological propensity to drink? Is it as simple as being availability? If you're an alcoholic, you keep alcohol in the house. If you have alcohol in the house, kids have easier access to that. Well, is it impaired parenting? Is it stress? Is it negative affect? Is it affiliating with deviant peers? And so you have this direct effect of parallel alcoholism on substance use. Mediation is, well, why is that? And I'm motivated for two reasons to try to understand that. One is just from a scientific ideological causal mechanism. What leads to what leads to what leads to what? But more important to me, we've established across many episodes, is that although I'm a clinical psychologist, I'm a very, very bad clinical (laughs) psychologist. If I can identify an ideological mechanism that underlies the conveyance of risk from parent to adolescent, can we use that information to design some kind of intervention where we can reach into the system and provide some kind of scaffolding or support to reduce that risk for adolescents who are exposed to the parental alcoholism. There's a lot in there, and let me start going through as many of them as I can while I'm thinking about them. First thing is really just a point of clarification. You said that parental alcoholism has a direct effect on child alcoholism. Then you went on to explain a mechanism for that. So in the language that I'm accustomed to, I think of that more as an indirect effect. Is there a direct effect or is there an indirect effect? Is there a total effect? Can you reconcile those for me terminologically or the way you think about them? I can try because there's a bit of a fog of war in Mm -hmm. terminology. So many people have written on this. There's really some wonderful papers out there. When I say a direct effect, I mean, let's pretend we do a study where we have 200 parents who are diagnosed alcoholic and 200 parents who are not diagnosed as alcoholic. Then we interview the adolescents and we evaluate their drinking. And then, you know what, Greg? Man, just good old school do a T-test. Mm-hmm. Right now, of course, I can embed it in an SEM and all of this, but do a T-test. And on average, adolescents who have an alcoholic parent report significantly higher levels of substance use than adolescents who do not have an alcoholic parent. That's what I call a direct effect. Hmm. I say before we bring anything else into the system, can we demonstrate that the risk factor is associated with the outcome? And that, in my eyes, is a bit consistent with the Barron and Kenny argument, which is you first demonstrate that the predictor has a reliable effect on the outcome. I don't love that terminology for a couple of reasons. <laughs> and I don't love Barron and Kenny on that particular point either. One thing is that if I drill down to this notion of a direct effect, I think of it more like the light switch. Now, I don't think the light switch is a perfect example either, 
but I think of it, you know, I flick the switch, the light comes on. Well, what really happens is I flick the switch, it closes a circuit, electrons flow, those electrons heat up a filament, the filament is in the presence of gas, that gas illuminates. So there's a chain of events there. Some people might call that an indirect effect. The terminology of direct effect, indirect effect, total effect, I think is a little bit murky and I might use it a little bit differently. But I think what you're saying could be taken to mean that a result of what you have done, a causal result of what happens on X leads to some kind of change on Y, irrespective of the pathway. Is that fair? To start, I will agree with you that I'm not super happy with that as a starting point. And Mm -hmm. what we may find as we go into this conversation is Mm -hmm. despite the enthusiasm that I have just conveyed, whether it involves squid spleens (laughs) or parental alcoholism, I am increasingly cautious about the utility of tests of mediation as they're commonly used in practice Mm -hmm. to begin with. I differentiate conceptually developing an ideological mediational model and then pragmatically how current best practices try to assign some numerical value to capture that mediating effect. And so Mm -hmm. as we talk, we can kind of distinguish those two. But how I view what I described as starting with parental alcoholism and having adolescent substance use and establishing an effect is an opening paragraph for me in a paper. Mm -hmm. To start with, adolescents are significantly more likely to report heavy alcohol use if they have an alcoholic parent. Next, we expanded this model to include three mediating pathways hypothesized. It's kind of like starting when you threw at pop quiz with me, intraclass correlation. Mm-hmm. I just see it as a nice opening paragraph. It's like, all right, mm-hmm. kind of we're limbering up, we're stretching out. Before I even start, we're going to go in and say that COA is a risk factor. COA is child of an alcoholic. COA is a risk factor for subsequent substances. The problem is, and I think that this is a real limitation, is if you're not able to demonstrate that direct effect, that doesn't mean that there aren't really important differences between COA and non-COA when you bring in other variables. So the other very mean pop quiz topic you gave me was suppression. And Mm -hmm. one of the biggest things we said is never ever make a decision based on a bivariate relation. So let's say that you did a two-group t-test and showed there was no difference Mm -hmm. in adolescent substance use. If you follow my opening paragraph model, you would say, well, there's no effect to be mediated, so there's nothing here to see. That's actually not the case. Because as we build the multivariate model that we believe to exist, very important effects could come to light that aren't captured in a simple two-group mean comparison. I think it's a really important point. There are often four steps involved in establishing mediation, and we don't need to recount what those four steps are, but the first one is often establishing that there is a relationship between whatever your X is and whatever your Y is. And in this case, it's whether or not you're the child of an alcoholic as your X, uh, and whether or not you yourself are an alcoholic or have certain drinking behaviors as a Y. I think that is a fundamental mistake to make that your starting point for the reasons that you say. And if we think about a model that has multiple mechanisms in the middle, and so I would like people to close their eyes and visualize what's going on. We've got an X variable over on the left. 
and we've got a y variable over on the right. And what Patrick said is there might be these three variables in the middle that are hypothesized mediators that are these potential mediating pathways from x to do whatever it's going to do to the y. And the research questions that you're articulating in your first paragraph are which of those appear to be the ways things are going. But some of those pathways can be positive, and some of those pathways can be negative. They can cancel each other out in the aggregate. And so that what you're left with is that x and y don't have any relation. And as you said, that absolutely doesn't mean that there aren't mediating pathways. Let's just get step one off the table. I think it's a mistake to limit yourself to establishing that. There's a term for that. I think it was Dave McKinnon who called it something like inconsistent mediation. The idea that the nature of the mediation is inconsistent with the nature of the overall relation that an X and a Y variable have. So I think that point that you started off with is really, really important. I agree completely with that. There's several issues at hand. One is just as you said, and it's not contrived, that notion that there could be one mediating mechanism that's positive, one mediating mechanism that's negative, and we can get into some of the terminology. You start to chase your tail a little bit of total (laughs) effects and then total indirect effects and specific indirect effects. Mm A specific indirect effect is one mediating trace in the presence of multiple possible traces. So you could have one positive specific indirect effect, one negative specific indirect effect. But when you sum those for the total indirect effect, it's zero, Mm -hmm. right? So one is you have these inconsistent mediation. One is you have potential suppression effects where you bring in other variables that changes the magnitude. And then the third one is what we talked about, well, at least what resides at minute 12 of 100, (laughs) which I kind of hope later this afternoon you get on because we have to post that pretty soon, which is moderation. I did a little diatribe in the moderation episode. Well, I shouldn't, we shouldn't refer to it because we cut babies die during the editing process and went on a little diatribe that may or may not survive it to final episode. But why would you ever think there we're driven in a main effect world? where you say, is there a treatment, yes or no? This exactly is here is, why would you even ask, is there an effect of parental alcoholism on adolescent substance use, yes or no? Are they actively alcoholic or not actively? Are they abuse or are they dependent? Is it the mom or the dad or both? Is the adolescent a male or a female? What is the age of the adolescent? It depends. And so that's a whole nother thing, which I used to scoff at the term until I kind of got my head around it. That's kind of a modus operandi for me. Is anything I don't understand, I just make fun of. And then I figure it out and I'm like, oh, wow, I was a wiener about that. Is moderated mediation. Mm -hmm. So you have parental alcoholism to impaired parenting, distress to negative affect to substance use is the mediated effect. Does that vary in magnitude for boys versus girls? You're squid spleening a little bit here and there. You are... (laughs) But... (laughs) Sometimes people will ask me, um, they'll say, well, if it's the case that you have these multiple mediating pathways and they cancel each other out, sometimes people will say, so then in the end, what does it matter? In the end, if it's the case that the sum total is that X doesn't actually have a bearing on Y, why do we care about this? If everything washes out in the end, I have two answers to that. 
One is a very academic answer, and that is that, well, it's our job to understand the way a system functions and maybe to unpack these competing pathways to understand that there are both negative and positive avenues for X to have an influence on Y. But the other, and this is something that you alluded to very briefly three squid spleens ago, <laughs> um, which is that maybe, in fact, we can intervene. Maybe there's something we can do. So if you think about a mediating model, let's imagine that you have some treatment that is supposed to help students. And one of the outcomes of kids being involved in that treatment is that it increases the amount that they study. And that in turn has some other benefit. But then let's imagine you have some other competing pathway that works against that, that being involved in this treatment has done something to them emotionally or taken time away from other things that they wish to engage in, and that has a negative impact. I just totally made that up. But the point is, if in the end we would say, well, I guess this treatment doesn't have an effect, but we find these two competing mediating pathways, what it potentially means is we can go in and turn one of those off or manipulate one of those or assign somebody to be a part of this treatment, but say, and we are going to tell you to study this number of hours. And the idea is that when one of your mediators is controllable, manipulable, what you actually do, if you think about this path analytically, is that you sever the pathway that goes from X to Y. And there's a whole language associated with this in the causal inference literature. Sometimes people call it doing surgery on your graph. But the idea is that you freeze that pathway. Once you do that by assigning some value to somebody of that particular variable, and that in and of itself has a treatment flavor to it, then you allow the other pathways to be operating. And so one of the things I absolutely love about mediation models is that they can be prescriptive. If you develop a sense of what the competing mechanisms are, they might wash out, they might not, but then it gives you a sense of where as a clinician, where as a teacher, where as a researcher, you might be able to put your emphasis if some of those are actually malleable. What that makes me think that reaching into the system, a couple of things, is one is yet another mnemonic. So here's today's mnemonic, all right? And whether this counts as a squid spleen or not, I'm not uh -huh. sure. Maybe in post-editing, we can put like a little bell each time a squid spleen happens. Today's squid spleen is the acronym OPEM. O-P-E-M. This is obviously a colloquialism, but you can think about the process of science as observation, prediction, explanation, and manipulation. The observation is you watch something happens. The prediction is as it begins to repeat, you see, oh, this happens, this happens. The explanation is why am I able to make this prediction? And then what you're saying is the manipulation is, is reaching in. So I like that a lot when we think about the arc of the scientific method. The second squid spleen is we've all established that I have a weirdo interest in airplanes and air crashes, and mm -hmm. there are a whole series of family rules where on the jetway, I cannot identify all the different <laughs> places that this particular type of aircraft has gone down around the world. Is It's kind of a silent zone for dad. <laughs> And there should be more of those. <laughs> yeah, 
You, oh, you've been talking to my family. <laughs> yeah. At least any modern airline crash, they're so rare now that a crash of a commercial aircraft is a string of highly improbable events. And when the FAA examines the string of highly unlikely events, they identify the ones that can be intervened upon mm-hmm. to try to break that chain for the future. The Concorde is the most dangerous aircraft ever made in the history of aviation, but they lost one in 30 years, mm-hmm. and they only built 14, or at least 14 mm-hmm. were in service. So one out of every 14 Concords ever built mm-hmm. crashed. It was a tragedy. It was Charles de Gaulle. A DC-10 took off before of it. A little strip of metal fell off of it and laid in the runway. The Concorde went down after it. One in a million chance it not only rolled over this little strip of metal, but it cut the tire. And at Mm -hmm. 200 miles an hour, the tire disintegrated. It threw rubber up into the bottom of the wing. It didn't even puncture it. The pressure on the fuel tank squirted fuel out the back of a valve that poured into the engine caught fire and then it went from there you have this chain of highly improbable events where do you break that so that's that surgical kind of Mm -hmm. thing that you're talking about and so that's squid spleen number two that will get cut because that was way too long (laughs) so here's where i have a love-hate relationship with mediation and i don't know if i'm squid spleening off of where you were going with that it's fine (laughs) it's fine go I like where we can take a sharpened stick and jab you by saying, why do you think this holds? Mm -hmm. Okay, so parental alcoholism is a risk factor. Okay, so your new curriculum in the school is going to improve end-of-grade testing. Why? Why do you think that is? So I think it's a wonderful intellectual sharp stick to say, so tell me why you think a child is at higher risk. The frustrating part is the way that mediation is tested and talked about, I think goes light years beyond what the typical measurement and empirical research application allows. That somehow some magical quality is put on a test of mediation where Mm -hmm. it is nothing more than just a product of regression coefficients Mm -hmm. that we test if it's significantly different from zero or not. I worry about the disjoint of the conceptual model where we think about mediation and then how it is typically applied in practice. Let me break that into two pieces here. One is the actual testing of these mediated effects or indirect effects, however you want to think about it. And I want to get your thoughts on that because there's not just one way to approach that. The other is just the framework from which one thinks they can make causal mediation kinds of claims, right, with what are typically cross-sectional data. So one is a more theoretical and the other is more statistical. Which one do you want first? Cause. Cause. Okay. Go ahead, grumpy old man. Uh, I've been splaining too much. Oh, there's some play in there, like mansplaining. Now it's mansplaining. (laughs) I like that. Gee, Greg, would you like me to squid spleen it to you? Oh! We just started a new... Okay, this is like truthiness, you know? That's a new word that gets into the dictionary. Do you want me to squid spleen causal inference to you? Yeah, put down the coffee, and then yes. (laughs) I have to admit, I'm a little on the high end on this. Okay. Why don't you let me take a couple of breaths and squid spleen causality to me? 
well, sure. Uh, yeah, the causality is not really much there. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's all hat and no horse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you say that because I've been teaching workshops in structural modeling for a long time, about a quarter of a century. You know, when I was initially laying it all out, you sort of have to address causality to some extent at the beginning of the whole thing. And you're like, oh, my God, right? There's a whole, there are whole wings of libraries <laughs> dedicated to, to stuff like that. You wind up getting away with, as you might say, digging up John Stuart Mill in your backyard and holding up three conditions and then saying, and we'll just go on from there, right? I mean, it's, causality is huge. But let's think about it in the way that people typically encounter it in the mediation models that they put forth. The data are almost always... They don't have to be, but the data are almost always cross-sectional. If the data were actually experimental, there would be easier ways to make causal claims about mediation than if the data are observational. When the data are observational, what you see very, very often is that someone says, I am going to connect X to M and M to Y and run a model and estimate those. That in no way establishes mediation in and of itself. The data were gathered cross-sectionally, generally speaking. There might not be other variables being controlled for in that system. I am all for people advancing theories and then looking at the extent to which the data are consistent with those particular theories or inconsistent. But I think people are kind of sloppy when it comes to doing the work necessary, even to make a reasonably convincing argument around mediation. One thing that in my quarter century of teaching SEM, and I feel very strongly about this, although some people disagree, which makes it fun, I guess, to argue Mm -hmm. about. I feel very strongly in an SEM, if you draw a single-headed arrow, you are inferring cause. And I feel like as a field, we have been pistol whipped into not using that word. Mm -hmm. So what we do is I have a measure of uncontrollable life stressful events, and then I have a measure of negative affect in adolescence, so anxiety and depression. In my path diagram, from the stress box, I draw a single-headed arrow to the negative affect box. I am implying that stress in part causes negative affect. But because we've been so abused in not saying cause, and I'm not saying inappropriately so, but we say all of these vague things like is associated with, or predicts, or provides some information about. So what I teach in my class is to say, look, suck it up and embrace that you are inferring a mechanism that is in part causal, that you're saying that an adolescent who is elevated in stress in part determines their level of negative affect. That said, though, is the extent to which we can draw a valid inference about that causal mechanism has nothing to do with measurement, nothing to do with the SEM, nothing to do with the chi-square test statistic. It is all about the design of the study that brought us the data. And so I think where I get very frustrated with some of the magical qualities of mediation and tests and how they're presented is they're still based on empirical designs that don't allow us to make any strong causal inference because of how the data came to us in the first place. 
We did get pistol whipped. There were some what appeared to be scathing critiques written about structural modeling in the 80s and early 90s. I seem to remember uh, like Cliff and Friedman and Baumrind, a number of people wrote some things about saying what you can and cannot do. And since that time, we've been recovering. We started to be very euphemistic and use words like structural <laughs> instead yeah. of causal. But at the end of the day, what do you mean? Well, I, I mean that there's a causal relation. Yeah. So I'm with you. You just own it. You lay it out there and you say, no, this is my theory. I am entitled to my theory. Here's a defense of my theory based on the literature, based on my understanding of the variables in play. And I articulate that theory from here on out. Every conclusion I reach is conditional upon the reasonableness of that theory. And so when I make some sort of claim, it is, if this is a reasonable theory, here's what I would conclude. So I think you have complete permission to make those kinds of conditional inferences, but there are models in which those are really lame and sloppy and tenuous, and there are models and data gathering and designs in which that is a lot tighter. So what would be your recommendation then? If someone wanted to study mediation, they really wanted to try to establish a convincing argument about mediational processes, how would you advise them in the design of a study to try to create the most compelling argument that mediation is an actual process operating? Oh my gosh, I'm back in my doctoral comprehensive exams. 90 seconds, go. (laughs) (laughs) Roy, I need to call Roy. (laughs) All right. I mean, I I liked your term earlier, their entire wings of libraries dedicated Mm -hmm. to this. And that's exactly what we're talking here, right? So I need to go out back and dig up John again. Mm -hmm. He's getting actually a little grumpy about that. As he just wants to rest in peace. Uh-huh. The very first one, and I see this as the minimal criteria to start talking about these things. And when I say minimal is it does not lock it into place. It is just a starting point, and that is repeated measures. We have mm-hmm. to start locking things down temporally. For me to have parental alcoholism, to impaired parenting, to stress, to negative affect, to deviant peer affiliations, to adolescent substance use. Mm -hmm. is to do that cross-sectionally is verging on a fool's errand. Now, there are reasons why we would do that. I'm co-author on papers that have done that, Mm -hmm. right? Is it's a first step, blah, blah, blah. We can go into all of that. But here's the danger, all right? And I'm going to squid spleen again is if you're really excited about SEM, if you see the promise of SEM, if you see that as a significant tool in our toolbox, go read Lee and Hirschberger and you will (laughs) never use SEM again in your life. It is one of the most clever, creative papers, but what they show is they have these preceding blocks and succeeding blocks. And what's the middle? Is it the intervening block? I've, I don't have it in front I've of me. I've blocked it out. You've, yeah, there we go. So, haha. Thank you. Following certain rules and guidelines, you can rearrange those variables in any of a variety of ways. And Mm -hmm. sometimes they range in the hundreds of ways, if not thousands of ways, that are not only alternative models, but they are numerically indistinguishable from one another. And so Mm -hmm. when I talk about equivalent models with students, sometimes they'll say, oh, no, I know they're competing models. It's like, no, 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 this Mm -hmm. isn't a competing model. 
This is, you take your mediating mechanism, follow Lee and Hirschberger, and there are 300 alternative models that all have precisely the same likelihood. They mm-hmm. fit identically. They are indistinguishable numerically. Part of it is getting your head around equivalent models. And so the minimal, the minimal first step is to move toward repeated measures with temporal precedence. But then, and this is where I will politely rebury John Stuart Mill and pull up my favorite book ever written, which is Shaddish Cooking Campbell, is to say, well, how do you make causal inference from quasi-experimental designs? Because the gold standard is, uh, we've heard all of this in the news, right, with the vaccine trials and everything, is you have a double-blind, randomized clinical trial. I can't do that with parental alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Right, The IRB is not going to allow me to randomly assign <laughs> alcoholism status and mm-hmm. yada, 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 right? This is why quasi-experimental design exists. So then you start paying attention to, well, how can we pull from a cooking Campbell kind of quasi-experimental design to say, all right, I can't intervene on parental alcoholism, but I can on parenting. And so I might do a experimental design where for a subset of the subjects, I teach parenting practices and then see if that in a later time point leads to a change in the child's substance use. So repeated measures and some kind of intervention. I like the combination of those. I don't know that people can always introduce interventions specifically in there, but the repeated measure thing is critical. And there's a figure that I've seen, including in things that you have done, which I really, really like. Imagine that you're interested in three variables. You think that X influences M, which influences Y. In other words, that M is a mediator between X and Y. And the design that I think I like (laughs) is where you measure X, M, and Y at time one, You measure X, M, and Y at time two, and you measure X, M, and Y at time three. And because you have it at these separate, meaningful, clearly defined time points, you can assess models that allow for, example, X to influence M to influence Y over time. And you can also allow Y to influence M to influence X over time. When you only have data at one time point, when they're cross-sectional, the model that has X going to M going to Y is equivalent in a Lee Hirschberger, Stelzel kind of way to a model that has Y going to M going to X. When you introduce time here, it gives you this ability to some extent to be able to say, no, that one actually doesn't work. The data aren't consistent with that mechanism. They are much more consistent with this mediating mechanism. And the shiv between the third and fourth rib (laughs) that we talked about in an earlier episode when you're waiting in line to get dinner is... In prison. (laughs) Let's just add, that's not at your house. (laughs) You're waiting... (laughs) Could you please put in prison on there? Yes, thank you for for establishing that the shiv between the third and fourth rib is not at home. It's actually in prison. But uh-huh. the shiv in what you just described is an autoregressive cross-leg panel model that we went off on a few episodes ago about mm-hmm. the confounding of within and between effects. What sometimes people talk about is narrow 
the universe of potential models. So Mm -hmm. when we have a cross-sectional, we have a very large number of alternative models. When we move longitudinally, we reduce that space. That's the minimal first step. And you're exactly right. A lot of times you can't do an intervention, but that moves us into the quasi-experimental design. And that's why that may be my favorite class of all classes to teach. Mm-hmm. is quasi-experimental design and tackling what Cooking Campbell and Shaddish have talked about for many, many years. You start getting into regression discontinuity designs. You start getting into natural experiments. Let's say I'm studying parental alcoholism. Can I study parents and families over time where some families beyond my control, the parent relapses into alcoholism following a treatment Well, I don't control that experimentally, but can I look at the downstream effects of Mm -hmm. a subset of parents who relapse from those who did not? But you know what's interesting is we are wandering out into the wing of that library of causal inference Mm -hmm. and less so the mediating mechanisms as we often encounter in SEM. So I might not mind, given this discussion, tacking the ship back toward mediation within SEM and what are the pros and cons of that given this background of causal inference. So let's pull back and think about this in the context of a model. And let's imagine that you have have a model that includes repeated measures. There are some good design elements that have gone into the choice of the variables that are here. The first thing that I think has to be said is that goodness of fit of that model is not establishing (laughs) mediation at all. And one of the things that I hear people say a lot is, I proposed a mediating model and the fit was great. To me, those are almost non sequiturs. The fit of a model is such a funny thing overall. It is made up of parts of your model that are just identified, parts of your model that are over-identified, and the little just-identified pockets of your model are not contributing any badness of fit. But if overall in aggregate the fit of your model is acceptable, it might in fact be that the bad parts of your model that are associated with mediation are getting sort of sanitized by the just-identified portions of your model that you have. So let's start off by saying that you're not going to make conclusions about mediation specifically on the basis of some global fit that you have associated with your model. The mediation stuff is going to require further drill down. And within your model, We have what we call indirect effects, and what you said before is there can be specific indirect effects and compound or total indirect effects. It can be parsed in many different ways. But how do you want to test that indirect effect, and what is that going to tell you, and what is that not going to tell you? Is that a question posed to me? That is a question posed to you. Wow, okay. So I guess the subtitle of this episode is Patrick Redoes His Dissertation Comps. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the two nightmares I have is having to redo grad school and going out to play a trumpet solo and I don't have my mouthpiece. (laughs) So we'll puzzle through that on another episode. I really like your statement about model fit. It all goes back to Mm whack-a-mole. Is I deeply worry when we start really focusing on mediation is imagine that your mediating mechanism is COA to parenting to stress negative affect to peer. And there's a big COA to peer direct effect that you've omitted. So that's whack-a-mole and you knock that into your model. If you omit that direct effect, dollars to donuts, that mole 
is going to pop up in the mediated effect because mm -hmm. that's how maximum likelihood works is it's going to redistribute that misspecification through that and you are at a very high risk of overestimating your mediated effect because you omitted your direct effect. But in terms of, now I forgot, what did you ask me? How do you prefer to test it or more broadly, what kind of test or process helps you to buy into the idea that there is a mediated effect here? Uh, that's a great question. So the standard way is to use the product method of the associated paths. So mm -hmm. one of my favorite papers Ken Bolin has ever written, and he has written many, many papers that I really, really like, but mm -hmm. I, I might say my favorite paper Bolin has ever written is his 1987 piece on the decomposition of direct and indirect effects. Mm -hmm. If you haven't seen that and you're quant curious and you want to look at this a little more formally, Bolin 87. Uh, the title is Total, Direct, and Indirect Effects in Structural Equation Models. Man, in and out, nobody gets hurt. You got to love that. All right. So you want it, go look at it. It's a beautiful paper. What it is, is if I want to know the indirect effect from parental alcoholism to parenting to stress to negative affect to deviant peer affiliations to substance use, each of those has a regression coefficient. And you literally, to get the indirect effect, multiply those raw regression coefficients down the chain. And that is your point estimate for the indirect effect of parental alcoholism on adolescent substance use. That's easy. A fifth grader can figure that out. The problem is we need a standard error for that. So we need to know what is the likelihood I would have observed an effect that larger, larger if there was no effect in the population. What Ken talks about in there, and it actually goes back to Sobel, and even mm -hmm. earlier, it's hard to put a definitive identification of the headwaters on this. You get a standard error from that using what's called a delta method. It's uh, based on a Taylor series approximation of a nonlinear function. And delta method is you get a point estimate and a standard error. And that's what has been done for many, many years. I got to tell you. I am one of the few left in the United States who likes Delta Method. Delta <laughs> Method, you can back over with a truck. Delta Method, you can insult and he never gets mad. Delta <laughs> Method, you know, you know that when the cops show up and mm -hmm. separate you, that Delta Method is going to stick to the story you all agreed on. Delta mm -hmm. Method is not going to have the cop come in and say, oh, your buddy says you were the one who started the fire. Right, And the delta method is going to say, I don't know what you're talking about. There was no fire. The delta method is not going to say, oh, that's bullshit, man. He was the one who started it. All right, that's delta method. There's 20 years of work that talks about limitations at delta method. I'm totally cool with it. You take a product of normal variates and itself the product is not normally distributed. Yet we use delta method to get symmetric confidence intervals. So we do these amazing bootstrap. We won't get into the weeds on that, but you repeatedly draw samples, repeatedly estimate the model, gather all the products together, look at the empirical sampling distribution, cut off the upper and lower 2.5% for your confidence intervals. You can have that be asymmetric. My opinion is nine times out of 10, the asymmetric bootstrap confidence interval sit right on top of the Delta method. Don't email me and tell me Delta method is flawed. I know that. I'm just saying that when it's being interrogated by the cops on its own, it's going to stick to the story. That's all I'm saying. 
But we get a point estimate, we get a standard error, we get a confidence interval, and we say that there is a significant specific indirect effect that links parental alcoholism to adolescent substance use as transmitted through our chain of variables. That's kind of state of the art. And I say, that's really interesting. What about temporal precedence, causal ordering, Lee and Hirschberger within and between effects? I think often we build a fortress out of equations and peek out and we say there's a significant specific indirect effect, but we're arranging chairs on the deck of the Titanic because mm-hmm. we have this wonderful test of an indirect effect that has all the problems we've been talking about before. Anybody who really wants to study mediation, they can't divorce themselves from temporal precedence. They can't divorce themselves from good design principles. There are other things they can't divorce themselves from either. And that has to do with things like the power of these tests, the role that that measurement error plays in these things. For that test that you do, whether you bootstrap the heck out of it, or there's another thing called the simulation test. There's the test that you describe using a delta-based approach. Whatever the heck you do, you're going to get your butt handed to you if you have a crappy measure of your mediator variable, or if you have crappy measures of the predictor or the outcome. So there's a lot of stuff at play here philosophically, right, in terms of causality, in terms of the competing models, in terms of temporality, in terms of quality of measurement. And someone who is going into a mediation study really shouldn't just be thinking, hey, I'm going to go get these three variables and totally like see what happens. Uh, All I need are some tasty waves, cool buzz, and I'm fine. No, that will not be convincing in any way, shape, or form. And unfortunately, I think that's kind of where people are in many occasions. I think that's how they approach it sometimes. And that's there's so much more to it than that. And thus my love-hate relationship with it is everything that's mm-hmm. been done with mediation, I think is fascinating and cool and provides us with another piece of information we didn't have before. But I guess my biggest worry is, as you described, and somehow Spicoli has now started doing mediation <laughs> work. I'm not sure how that happened. <laughs> My biggest walkaway point is the entire architecture of testing mediation in the way that we've talked about up to this point does not have some kind of magical quality to it. Mm -hmm. An inferential test of a specific indirect effect is simply a compound parameter. We have parameters in our model and we can do anything we want with them. We can add them, we can subtract them, we can set them to be equal to one another, and we can take products of them. And to take the product of a string of regression coefficients that gives us a new parameter estimate, one of the beauties of maximum likelihood estimates of all the nice properties of ML apply to compound parameters, combinations of maximum likelihood. It's just a new piece of information that's distilled from our typical SEM, our typical PATH model. But as you were saying, all the limitations of PATH analysis, when Mm -hmm. we talk about unreliability and attenuating regression coefficients, linearity, normality, alternative Mm -hmm. models, equivalent models, within and between effects, all of those apply precisely the same way to this compound parameter 
as it would any other numerical value that we distill out of that model. And we just need to remember that. Yeah, I'm not saying don't do it, don't report it, don't think about it, but it's not magic. There's not a causal inference in that compound parameter that is any stronger than any other single-headed error that you have. And I would underscore that as people start to move into the more complex analytical frameworks that you alluded to at the beginning, and that's when we start mixing mediation and moderation. Mm. When we start, right, when we start saying that this is a fascinating mediating process, and I wonder if it works the same way for everyone, if it works the same way for different people. I think it's a great question. But the more that we embed already challenging mediational questions within a larger framework that has both mediation and moderation in the same place, we have to be triply mindful of all of these other things that are going on, both in terms of understanding our mediation, but also in terms of understanding how moderators might be operating along with that mediation as well. That's where I start getting more excited about these models is thinking about moderated mediation. Now, I'm not smart enough to think about mediated moderation, so I'm going to leave that one to Barron and Kenny and Preacher and McKinnon. But moderated mediation, imagine the parental alcoholism to parenting to stress negative affect to substance use, and you have some mediated effect. But say you do a multiple group model on biological sex, and you ask... Does the magnitude of the mediated effect vary as a function of whether the child is a boy or a girl? Mm -hmm. And so it gets into that prior episode that is at 12 minutes, and I really am hoping you get to work on that soon because the shot clock is ticking. Mm The it depends. So what is the mediating mechanism for parental alcoholism on adolescent substance use? Well, it depends. There's one mediating mechanism for boys. There's a different mediating mechanism for girls. And there's actually evidence for that. For boys, there's more of an externalizing delinquency aggression mediating mechanism. And for girls, there's more a negative affect, depression, anxiety, self-medication mediating mechanism. So being able to talk about now putting Baron and Kenny's distinction of mediation and moderation, but back together again, is mm-hmm. what are the mediators that link parental alcoholism to adolescent substance use? Well, it depends. Yet that does not unhook us from the obligation, as you just said, of thinking about temporality, thinking about equivalent models, thinking about this distinction of within and between person effects. And there have been some interesting little forays into that wilderness, but I think as a field, that's where we need to put much more careful thought. Especially as you start to embed those mediational models within a moderating kind of framework, within that larger area that Andy Hayes is calling conditional process modeling, Mm -hmm. which is an attempt to formally integrate all of those kinds of things. It's a home where mediation lives, moderation lives, mediated moderation lives, moderated mediation lives, moderated moderation. (laughs) Moderated. (laughs) I've not read up on moderated moderation. It's a thing. Are you serious? No, moderated moderation is a thing. Isn't that a three-way interaction, moderated moderation? There you go. But it just sounds so much fancier when you call it moderated moderation. No, it it doesn't. (laughs) It's why people don't like academicians. Uh It's not moderation. It's moderated moderation. And then for my dissertation, I'm doing moderated, moderated, moderation. (sighs) 
This is why people don't like us, Hancock. Right here is why people don't like us. I like you. I, uh... Don't make me throw a squid spleen at you. Uh, <laughs> All right. Your takeaway message for mediation today. Mm. One would have thought I would have given some consideration of this before we started recording. My walkaway point. I really, really like concepts of mediation. I think it's incredibly important as a field that we think about mechanism. Not only for points of intervention, because that's my selfish interest, but because of etiology, to think about causal mechanisms, what leads to what leads to what. That's one of the things with mediation is it transcends all of life. All right, think about Fed policy. If that is foundationally about mediation, Fed policy will change this, will change this, will change this, will change this. So I love that. That said, Mm -hmm. a product term of a specific indirect effect with a bootstrap standard error is not magic. It does not provide you some unique insight into a causal mechanism that is any stronger than any individual link in that. So just the Clint Eastwood, a person's got to know their own limitations. Man's got to know his limitations. Is It's mm-hmm. a compound parameter. There is no magical inferential quality about this that allows you to say something that you weren't able to say before. I think it's important. Report it. Talk about it. But where we need to go, I think, is taking a deep breath And going back to Reuben and going back to Cooking Campbell, going back to first principles about causal inference and what do we need to do in the design and the measurement of our system to make a stronger inference about causal mechanisms. So I guess my walkaway points is mediation is not magic and we still have to consider first principles. I think considering first principles is a great thing to go out on. Your question of mediation is embedded within a larger model and it's your responsibility to embed it in that larger model to make sure that your claim about mediation has a reasonable chance of being informative. However you choose to test it on the back end, situate it properly within the context that it needs to be in in the first place. So I think we're nearing an exit point. It's not magic. Go back to first principles and please quit renaming things because it confuses us. (laughs) There you go. Done and done. Should we end on some word association? So we could go out on a word association, but given the amount that you're squirming around and the look you have on your face, my guess is whatever I say, your word association is going to be urine. So I'm kind of thinking maybe I should just let you go. Urine. This is what happens when you don't bring a Snapple bottle to a recording (laughs) session. Can you just finish talking, please? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Oh, thought trace. That reminds me. I'm out. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream audio at full blast to block out the day's news. And please leave us a review. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod. Or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, to check out past episodes and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get awesome Quantitude merch at redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support remote access in low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, the Desk Rejected Podcast. 
This episode has been brought to you by the upcoming spring semester, which will start at some point, end at some point, and do something in between. By Zoom job interviews, because in-person interviews just weren't stressful enough. And by canceled college town Halloween events, allowing undergrads to dress up, take hallucinogens, and stumble around their parents' living room until the cops shut the whole thing down. This is most definitely not NPR. NPR.